Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Dan Backens and Pastor Kevin Turpin, who have been working together at New Life Church in Hampton Roads, Virginia, for over 20 years. We're going to dig into topics around multicultural worship, um, race, and also how to, yeah, how to stay in relationship and in ministry for the long haul. Amazing. Well, yeah, thank you both for, for being with me. It's such a delight. You guys have both shaped my life and ministry in, in so many ways. Pastor Kevin, I want to just jump in with you. Like, what led you to unite with a white, South Dakotan, Lutheran pastor to help plant a church here in, in Tidewater in Hampton Roads? Well, first, let me say that um, I had no plans of doing such <laughs> when I moved here and when I enrolled uh, in the uh, divinity program at Regent University. Uh, but in time, as I begin to reflect and begin to, I would say, wrestle with the Lord regarding the invitation to join uh, Dan in launching the church, um, the Lord really dealt with my heart because I always had a heart to play a role in reconciliation or unity in the body of Christ. Again, John 17, that became a significant scripture to me. So I viewed this as an opportunity to take a step in that direction, but felt totally unqualified <laughs> to do such. Dan had many years of pastoral experience. Mm. I didn't. Yeah. I was more in the yeah. laity, served on church boards and things like yeah. that. So it was, it was even getting through the whole sense of, am I qualified yeah. to do it? But uh, in time, after many conversations with, with Dan, uh, in a lot of prayer, <laughs> in, in consultation with my wife, who cried when she, when I finally said yes. <laughs> um, what well, can I, I can I jump sure. in? Like what in her heart? What what was what was going on, or what what were you wrestling with with that call to, to well, kind of full time ministry heart. and plan a multicultural church? And in her heart, um, the her church experience mm -hmm. from where we moved from from New York was not positive. It was a very negative experience. Uh, I was really uh, consumed with church 24-7. I won't go yeah. into the details, yeah. but that was her. So when uh, I started talking about full-time ministry, she couldn't imagine. If, if I was doing ministry part-time yeah. as a, yeah. a layperson, yeah. and then I was going to formally step into yeah. the role yeah. of, of launching a church, I mean, she, in her own mind, was envisioning a lot of things, and it wasn't good. However, she released me to do so because I really felt God's hand in it, you know, as I said, after a lot of prayer. And it did fulfill that, that sense of call in me yeah. to be a uniter. Yeah. And I, I felt that God had uniquely wired me, uh, even mm -hmm. from my days, high school days, on up through college days, to do something like this. Uh, so after he got me past this and he gave me a grace, I said yes. Yeah. So I didn't know what I was saying yes <laughs> to him too, but I said yes, and yeah. it was right. Yeah. Did you realize at that point, like, that part of the weaving of your story, like of you, you just mentioned like you were in high school and you could see yourself as uniting people. Did you realize it at that point, or did it actually take a few years of working together where you could look back and say, oh, I think God was setting me up for this. Yeah, it took me some yeah. time. You know, yeah. naturally, conversations with, with Dan, you know, it, it moved me closer. Yeah. He kind of settled some of the questions I had and some of the fears yeah. I had. And also just observing him and yeah. watching uh, Pastor Dan in ministry. 
and some things that he shared from the pulpit, my wife heard, which said, wow, I've never heard these things before. So her heart began to settle down <laughs> and be at peace. She said, well, this is different. I've never heard or have never seen model for yeah. me in terms of the pastor really putting his family first. Yeah. Uh, that was something different for her. And when certain statements were made from the pulpit, that began to work in her heart. She said, maybe I am. Well, for sure, I'm in a different place, but maybe this is the right place. So those things kind of, God took care of all of that, and a lot of her fears were laid, and and I I stepped into it. So even here, I'm hearing even some healing. You know, it's been, I'm sure, and we'll talk about it, it's been challenging, but also there's been some healing through... Through, the, through Pastor Dan, through your, your guys' relationship, through just what the church is trying to model around what it means to be a full-time pastor and a dad, a husband, a <laughs> yeah. mom. A, yeah. yeah. It, it, was. yeah. It, it was significant. And that was a significant um, transition for me when I came here is, again, uh, for four or five years, I did no ministry, yeah. which was initially was very difficult because I was yeah. engaged in ministry. That was my life. Um, and then when I sat out, and actually my ministry became becoming a basketball coach for my son, <laughs> which, again, that was very significant uh, for me, for the family, what it communicated to my wife in terms of my commitment to the family, and I didn't have to be in church 24-7. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a time of healing. And then when new life opened up, which I said initially, I said, I don't think so, because it was very different than I grew up in the black church. Yeah. So, you know, my... The way I define worship and preaching and all of that was very different. And when I visited New Life, I said, okay, this is nice, but this is different. This is not me. But after coming a few times, there were other things that the Lord wanted to, to communicate to me and to expand my view of all those different areas of prayer, of worship, of preaching, of church. Uh, and I said yes to that. I had to say yes. I resisted a bit because naturally you have your preferences, but... But after I settled myself, or well, allowed him to settle me, <laughs> I began to see this is God. So part of it, it sounds like part of it, you're, you, you're able to, you were able and are able to bring some of who you are, your own culture, your own identity, but there seems to be an, yeah, an openness from learning from others and other streams. And, and, and yeah, I want to get in, I want to get deeper into that <laughs> in, in just a moment. But yeah, Pastor Dan, what? What led you, again, we were just talking, like you're from South Dakota and the Badlands and Black Hills and that part of the South Dakota at least is fairly, even today, is fairly monocultural. What, what in your journey led you to think, I'm going to be in Hampton Roads, I'm, I'm going to help pioneer a multicultural church that's planting other multicultural churches? What in your journey catalyzed this oh, yeah. shift, really? Yeah, you know, some men... Are blessed with knowing uh, what they want to do in their twenties. Mine is more of a, of a series of convergences. When I came to Region, I was 37, and it was a point of oh, I don't know if I was burnt out, but I I needed to go back to school. I needed a fresh start. I'd pastored 15 years. I knew how to pastor. I uh, I had developed the ability to preach some, and I had some success, but I uh, was very unhappy. And um, then I, I, I got introduced to Regent, came out to Regent, fell in love with the experience, and decided to stay to complete a degree, which had been a two-year process. And while I was at Regent, 
kind of kind of recalibrating what am I going to do with my life? It's kind of a midlife thing. Yeah. And um, I met people. And here's the thing that we underestimate is how God uses relationships. And you often don't know how he's going to use it at the time you make the friendship. But I just click with some people. And when I click with people, there's often uh, long-term fruitfulness. And some people I like, but I just don't click. And I want to click, but I, it's, I don't click. And Kevin and I clicked, uh, which to me was shocking. Kevin's the first African-American I've ever known. And everything I know, let me say, everything I learned about African-American culture, history, tastes, strengths, weaknesses, I, I was coached through most of that by him. And when we became friends in seminary, I was friends with others. You know, Brent Lucy, Bobby right Hill. These guys changed my life. Pat Robertson. Um, sidebar, in those days, region changed the trajectory of lots of people, Jeremy, including you. Yeah. And uh, I'm thankful to that. Higher education has a place in shaping journeys, and it shaped mine. So I, Kevin and I, we became friends long before we decided to start a church together. So the relationship wasn't didn't start this way. I want to make friendship with a black guy so I can fulfill a vision of starting a multi-ethnic church. Kevin and I just hit it off. And we enjoy getting to know each other. And Kevin is so non-threatening. Uh, he was so patient with me in my stumbling efforts to figure this whole thing out. And that I invited him to come on staff at the church I was I was campus pastor, and still at the time we hadn't we weren't doing that to be a multi ethnic church. It was a suburban white church. Kevin came on. He would have been one out of maybe ten African Americans in a church of twelve hundred. And uh, it was after about a year of that. You know everyone by name, right, Pastor Kevin? You know every everyone by name. I see you. Yeah. And after about a year. Uh, there was the convergence of let's let's start something together where we're partners instead of a white church saying to African Americans come join us or a black church saying to Hispanics and whites come join us we said let's start something together that's multi-ethnic and it was scary I remember was it something that was made in a day it was a decision over months like, really, what are, we, what are we doing? I don't know what I'm doing. And I really think that that the teachableness, Jeremy, and the humility and the going into this, really depending on God without any swagger, endeared us to God. And he blessed us. Uh, we had people say we started out with 11 people in our living room. Kevin and I started out day one with almost 500 In a, in that's right. A, right? That's right. And now it's grown to 6,000, and it is, uh, it's a God thing. But I, the journey, I would never have done this. I would have never thought about doing this if it wasn't for Kev. And Kevin and I, you know, if I might, Kevin and I have a unique relationship in that I'm Kevin's pastor. So on one level, I'm over Kevin. Kevin is my counselor. And when I do a monthly confession of sin, 
is the one that pronounces forgiveness over me. So I'm under him in that. And then we're friends. So we have these different dimensions, and we're able to put the hat on depending on the context. Nobody honors me more in a public meeting than Kevin. Nobody. He, uh, he honors me as the pastor. In private, we're mutual. Mm. And then, mm. then the, when I'm hurting and I need help or I'm, because I'm a melancholy, I, you know, I'm emotionally, I'm, I'm the wild, wild west, he's my counselor. You know, and he's, Kevin's really the only guy that can take this, for what I take it for what it face, that can say no to me. The elders can say no, but they, they, it takes a while for them to get there. Kevin in the conversation says, no, Dan, that's not God. And I had chose years ago to say, I'm just going to have to submit to him on this. And here you go, in a multi-ethnic church, the fact that God brought a the, the, the greatest man of God I know into my life, who was black, broke down all of my preconceived definitions of, of, of spirituality and he's influenced me and I've influenced him and so some people will say like we want to do what you do I don't know if you can do what we do because we had five years of friendship and we butted heads and it worked out and I well I shouldn't say we really butted heads I, I that's we didn't butt heads that much but there was a learning curve mm -hmm. that um it takes time. It's true. I mean, so so often I think when either a church trying to grow into the multicultural identity or even church planters, worship leaders trying to think, hey, and next year we'd love to plant a multicultural church. I think what you're, you're highlighting here is, yeah, relationship. And you have to build a trusting relationship in ministry. And you guys were able to do that, it sounds like, for years before you said, Let's do something new or let's plant something together where most church planning teams or ministry teams kind of get thrown together. And then when they ask questions about multicultural worship, they're wanting to know what's, you know, A plus B, you know, equals a mega church of 6,000 with lots of different nationalities and cultures and backgrounds and subcultures. But that A plus B really needs to be within the context of a trusting, loving relationship it's true. and that's hard and I think particularly as I, I think of you two in the last few years in the U.S. with so much tension around again there's always been tension but I guess maybe it's more prominent right now like how how have you maintained that that sense of friendship relationship where Pastor Dan you're leading the church Pastor Kevin you're a member and a pastor on staff but you're also Pastor Dan's counselor how do you maintain that relationship where it feels like it? I'm, I'm not in your life every day, but it feels like to me it would be pe people trying to pull you apart, culture trying to pull you apart all the time. Like how do you how do you fight against that? How do you walk together as friends and as co-laborers? This this will sound trite, <laughs> I know it is, but it, it's love. I love Dan. I can disagree with him. We we've had strong disagreements. Uh, which I think is healthy, by the way. Um, but at the end of the day, I can't imagine doing anything that's going to hurt him. You know, so um, we can disagree, but there's a genuine, there's a foundation of love, care. I respect him. 
as my brother. I respect him as my pastor. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to conjure it up. At the end of the day, that's what the Lord did when he put us together. I, I like this term. I forget where I got it from. He's my yoke fellow. You know, he's, he's more than just a partner or more than a brother. Through thick and thin, good and bad, I feel by God's design, he's ordained us to be together. So we're together <laughs> through good times, bad times, challenging times um, for a purpose. It's a kingdom purpose. I can't get outside of that. This is a kingdom purpose. I can't afford the luxury of getting mad, throwing in the towel. I don't care even if I want to do it um, because there's a higher purpose for the relationship. There's a higher purpose for the church. And again, that's not, that's just not just words or rhetoric. It's, it's what I've been governed by, that, that belief that this is kingdom. This is about, you know, uh, bringing the church together. Again, the success of the church, if you call it that, you know, some people say, well, how, you know, can you sit down with me? You write a book and all. I say, so much of it, yes, there's the intentional part, but then there's the organic part. And it's just simply been a work of grace, the grace of God. He's favored the work, and, you know, to act as if we knew what we were doing when we started, I think would be disingenuous. How, it, where, where has those relationships been, your, your guys' relationship been stretched? Or are there, yeah, there are particular issues yeah, or topics where, yeah. where, where that comes up. And I know this, yeah, this, again, share, share what you, yeah. you feel is appropriate, but I know... For so many of us, I think what you were saying, Pastor Kevin, like people, people aren't willing to stick through that tension or I don't agree with this pastor said this one time, this one day, I'm going to leave his church and tweet about him for the rest of my life. Or I don't agree with what my wife said about this one time. And so we're going to pull apart in relationship. And I just know that I've seen that perseverance and friendship and love. I've seen it in action with you two. Like, could, yeah, is there... Yeah. A situation sure. or topic that where there's there is that tension, and how do you the biggest how do you walk that out? the biggest discussion I think Kevin and I've had, at least that I remember that were, that was painful, and Kevin concluded the conversation saying I don't think we should talk about this anymore today, and I said no I think we need to talk about it. Was after George Floyd, and the whole. Black Lives Matter, and uh, I felt Kevin, you know, he was looking at race and using, thinking of it in terms I had, we had never talked about before. And I think Kevin saw me slow to the party, and um, I remember one thing I said to him, I said, well, Tell me, give me a name of one person that has suffered under systemic racism that you know personally, and then show me and show me how. And Kevin said, "I'm not going to do that." I said, "Yeah, you are." I understand. It got hot. We're on the phone. We're not. We're not talking. Okay. Yeah. This is built on 20 years of friendship. I don't recommend going there unless the bridge of the friendship can That's hold good. the weight of the conversation. Mm. That just is going to backfire. I, he was angry and I was angry. And yet in the middle of the anger, it's like I felt permission to be me. Hmm. And not 
say the words perfect. Like, oh, you said, you know, I felt mm-hmm. Kevin would give me the grace to kind of uh, cathart. And I gave Kevin the grace to cathart. Now, when he said a couple things that really ticked me off, this is how I navigated it. I pushed myself emotionally away from the conversation, and I asked myself the question, is Kevin a man of God or not? Yes, Lord. Has he ever done anything to warrant being considered not having integrity or to be uh, anything but fair and generous. No. So because I could dispassionately say he's a man of God, I could swallow it. And then we t- I called Kevin about a day later. So we are good. Kevin goes, yeah, we're good. And I could tell his voice is still a little nervous. I was still upset. The whole nation's upset. The whole church is upset. We had COVID on top of race, on top of elections, and then (laughs) President Trump just about blew us apart twice. And not just him, I'm just saying that's a metaphor for politics. Politics, yeah. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And and here's the deal, Jeremy. I think the fact that that I, I trust Kev. Kevin has, has allowed me, I, I see a point of view now that I, I couldn't see before. I mean, and I get it. I, I, I get why African American church and why African American activists are doing what they're doing. There's a few crazies in every camp, but I get the, ba- I get the basics now. I would have never got the basics without Kevin. I just wouldn't have got it. I you know I have a little bit of gift mix of mercy and empathy, so I, I can kind of feel people's pains, but I now I, I understand that I can connect the dots. You know, when you come out of slavery and you couldn't even vote to the 1950s, you have to understand there is a residue something in that culture that takes a while to work out, and you got to get it. I mean. You know, white folks are—they're—they're famous for saying this. Get over it. Well, it's like a rape victim. Let's say it's a year after the rape, two years after the rape, ten years after the rape, and she is still struggling to say, "Get over it." Mm-hmm. Is that compassionate? So I might say, "Come, good Lord, Susie, that was ten years ago. It's time to snap out of it. Move on. Find another guy." Well, the whole culture has been traumatized. Kevin, help me to see that, to process that, without making every white guy the enemy. Because Kevin doesn't do that. We know Kevin when he's in our church. You know, Kevin, he's a pastor in New Life. This would be back when you were coming, I think, or maybe, maybe. And we had a prominent white family in our church that came up to Kevin. God, this is 25 years ago. And said, uh, can I meet with you? And Kevin said, sure. And this white family, I won't say anything more about it, but some of your people listening to this podcast probably know their name, said, Kevin, I want to tell you something. You're, you're my pastor, and you're the first black man. I, I just want you to know that 
I see you, I see you as, as a pastor. As if this is some gigantic admission of magnanimous love. I'm giving you permission to be my pastor, and you're the first black one. Let's all applaud, shall we? This white guy has really done something phenomenal. It just ticked me off. Like, who, who do you think you're talking to? You're so patronizing. Kevin, on the other hand, says, thank you. And they became excellent friends. And I would say that couple today are in a far different place than they were in that conversation. So what upset me, he took for what it was and turned it into something good. It was humbling for me. I remember this person and, and got on their knees. It was very genuine um, because of their journey. Uh, and again, my being the first African-American pastor, um, as, as, as Dan said, I said, wow, the fact, the courage, the boldness, I think the humility for that person to acknowledge that, number one, and then the way this person did it, um, I, I was touched by it. <laughs> and essentially blessed him. I said, hey, that's great. That's fine. Uh, we move on because, again, one thing I've learned is, again, our journeys have been so different in, in many respects. And within a, a, a multi-ethnic setting, that's what's so wonderful. You have an opportunity to hear, if you're willing to listen, uh, someone else's journey. And to get back to what Dan said earlier about the importance of building a relationship. And one thing that excites me, you know, 25 years later is to see all the friendships, authentic friendships and relationships black, white, Hispanic, Asians, Indians going into each other's homes. We have a long way to go. But to stand back and, and look at all the relationships that have developed um, that's and it's flourishing, I think it represents the kingdom well. I mean, words I think you're both hitting on is words like empathy, words like attunement, like you, Pastor Dan attuning to... Yeah, Kevin's experience, Pastor Kevin's experience. Why, why do, why does our culture stink? In particular, the church, all these suck at that right now. Like, we, yeah, I just feel like we can't even have a conversation. I've, you no. guys both know I've lived outside the U.S. the last 15, 16 years, and came back during the midst of. All, we were in Minneapolis around, yeah, when George Floyd was killed, and we're really brought into that and went down there and worked with three different churches one black church one white suburban church one multicultural church and just in in that space there was so much unity and empathy and meaning in the actual block where that happened and mm -hmm. prayer and worship and barbecue and activists and but but then as i'd watch it on national news christian media it was, there was no empathy. There was no attunement. You're either this or you're either this. You're either a racist or, yeah. Like, you guys have been able with, with empathy, with attunement, with friendship and relationship to, yeah, build something so special. And, again, there's, I guess I, what I'm hearing through this, there's not an equation to that. Like, trust is the currency or relationship is the currency of this kind of relationship. You know, uh, Jeremy, I know you uh, have a doctrine of worship, but worshiping together authentically, you know, there, there's no magic bullet in this thing, but 
if, if, if people worship together and, and pray together cross-culturally and friendships develop, sometimes um, you have a, in the act of worshiping together, God bonds you together, binds you together in a, in a way. And I think that churches have tried to stay together through common ideologies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Don't, I don't want the, your listeners to mistake in the, the price that New Life has paid the last two years is we have been assaulted on the left and from the right. Accused from the left not doing enough, accused from the right of catering to the left, not speaking out, not supporting political candidates by name and so forth. And so holding the middle ground, which is what we try to do, you lose on both ends. It's easier today to have a church where everybody in the pew wants the pastor to preach what they already believe the ideology of the political ideology cultural ideologies are all held in common those churches are thriving it's churches that are trying to say god loves us all there's one way to heaven it's the cross we're going to worship together we strong in the atonement strong on heaven strong on jesus strong on the kingdom right but you're making latitude for different journeys I heard I heard Andy Stanley do his podcast a couple of days ago, and and the, and he said this. He says, "Pastoring's no fun anymore." This is Andy Stanley, the giant. Yeah. It's no fun anymore. He says these ideologies have just eaten eaten away at at churches, and I think maybe there's a giant reset. Like, what are the churches being built on? Is it yeah. the, you know Christ crucified, or is it? Do we have to agree politically? Without demonizing the political activists. Some people are so, called. So I can't demonize and call them out like shame on you. But can you make room to go to the Lord's table with somebody who votes completely different than you if they call on the Lord mm-hmm. equally like you do? And I believe that the pandemic is, has forced some of this for us to um, uh, evaluate ourselves what are our core beliefs? If if we're paying attention, you know, this pandemic didn't just come out of the blue. I think it's with intention. I think uh, God is after something. And oftentimes you hear individuals in the church, it's about the world. I don't think it's about the world. It's, it's about the church. And I think purifying and refining the church, now how long it will take for us to get there, uh, well, <laughs> I think God is in what you choose. <laughs> Uh, however, we're going to have to really see, I, I, I see how lacking we've been in terms of the, the capacity or the tendency now to put our personal uh, ideologies, particularly the politics, you know, above relationships or above the word of God for, for that matter. It's easy to do so, though. Let me say that. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, yeah, we should. No, no, no. You can slip. It's easy to default. Whatever your leaning is, you can go there real fast, and you have to be very intentional in saying, "Okay, God, it's, what does your word say? You know, how am I to um, relate to those who, you know, are passionate about something that's very different than what I'm passionate about?" So you, you have to stop yourself daily. In these these times, it's it's a daily thing. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I have so many. I mean, we're a part of. The One Focus Network, we've been a part of New Life as missionaries and worked for a, a New Life church, my wife and I, and so I have lots of New Life friends, and so I follow them on social media, and so I can, 
even just from looking at the posts of, you know, you'll have one of my good friends throwing up a, a BLM post. You'll have another one anti-vax, another how we all need to vax to love one another. And I just, yeah, first pray for you and encourage you in, in what, what you're sure. doing as you're drawing this, this church together who are yeah, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's something I, we didn't mention that I, I think is core to um, to building relationships in a multi-ethnic church in particular, and the fact that we've been sustained to this point, and that's prayer. You know, prayer became one of the core values of this church early uh, when we first started, and it continued. It, didn't, it wasn't a fad. But it began to mushroom with each passing year where, you know, the month of prayer started. And we still have a, a time during the month uh, where we just focus in on prayer. And I think that's, that's been important as well uh, because that kind of greases the skids in the heart. <laughs> but Kevin, you know, I think um, of all the prayer meetings that the church has, whereas I don't know of anybody that has been faithful to corporate prayer consistently over a course of a few years that has left the church over the ones that are leaving the church are those that are not engaged in the prayerful life of the church and uh, I think that's a, that speaks to what you're saying is that the you know the fact that we're praying together and the leaders pray together you know Jeremy our, our church our, our church leadership we have about 55 on staff and it's about 50 50 half african-american and half not and the fact that there's not been a schism with our staff, I attribute to, to the prayer life of the staff being required. I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna pray together. That's right. And that's kind of held us together. And I think one of the differences that we've had with this pandemic is that back to relationships has caused so much division in the church with race and so forth. This, when you tweet and when you put something on Facebook, it's it's not in the context of relationship. Primarily, primarily it's on the context of either. You're angry, or you want to preach, or you want, or you want to, or you want to strut. It's emoting, <laughs> something, right? And we never used to be able to do that. It used to be you want to talk about race, uh, you had to talk to somebody. And I think the relationships tamped down some of the, like some of the people that post some of the craziest stuff. In person, they're some of the nicest people. Yeah. You're going. What? What are you doing, man? This isn't really reflective of how, what I know of you. Yeah. Well, I, I guess go back to what you're saying, like about prayer. Even before we get into like multicultural corporate worship, I think one of the keys that I see that you, as both as friends, as as co-laborers, but also in the church, is that you bring people together to pray. And it's not. I mean, you'll use liturgy sometimes. You'll use music, but also it's a very open space which is quite rare in the church again you have leadership you have elders you have people leading so it's not just anybody can grab anything but i think that pentecostal theology of worship where all everybody can prophesy so the spirit doesn't just fall on the paid pastoral right. staff the spirit can fall on a six-year-old who wants to come and pray the spirit can fall on Somebody who's, yeah, severely disabled or handicapped or special needs that have a word. And I've seen that here leading in prayer. And I guess that, different cultures, different beliefs, I think that space, like that theology, that this is a 
yeah, charismatic church, a church that yeah, draws from many streams, but knowing both of your journeys and mine, I think that theology of worship then being expressed somewhere in the church where there is a space I can bring a lament or I can bring a, a passionate prayer or I can prophesy into this situation is so unique. And in particularly the more I study the church, that's one thing that draws me back like, yeah, I am a Pentecostal. I want a space where the spirit can fall on all flesh, regardless, ability, disability, cult, you know, black, white, Jew, Gentile, all, like mm -hmm. every person, age doesn't, doesn't matter. And again, I know there's leadership and ordination and calling and, and those kind of things that are, that are critical. But I, I feel like my involvement in those prayer meetings and seeing that modeled is, is that, yeah, it's the, the furnace for what I've seen, like then expressed in the growth of the church and the relational issues. But it's that commitment to like, let's pray. You can bring a prayer. You bring a word. Right. You bring a song. You know, and the multi-ethnic right. church is probably the most visible in a prayer meeting. Not not the singing of worship, although it is visible, in a prayer meeting. Because your, your journey, your cultural journey, your church journey shapes the, how you pray. It shapes mm -hmm. the content of your prayer. And... If you really want to get to, you know, some people will often say, damn, can I, I really like to get to know you. And I say, come pray with me. You hear me pray over time. And I, if I get to hear you, the prayer you're hearing you pray, we will get to know each other. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, Kevin, I, I know how Kevin prays. I know how Kevin prays like the back of Melvin. I know how he prays. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I know how my wife prays. Mm -hmm. And then you have the, the cognitive prayer people, mm -hmm. like Steve. Carlin, who is passionate mm -hmm. in the intellectual prayer, and he's bringing a, a diversity to the prayer. So, if you come from an evangelical, white evangelical church, you're used to conversational prayer that might be ramped up a little bit. If you come from a black Pentecostal church, you're going to feel that prayer. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't feel the prayer, and the prayer might start here and it's going to end over here. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. the cultural way we do it. And if you'll come open-hearted to these prayer meetings and hear different prayer anointings that are in different cultural settings, it's electrifying. It's absolutely electrifying. And you and you begin to appreciate, um, who's the guy that's always loud all the time? Maurice. Maurice. Okay, Maurice is, a, I was at Friday morning prayer today yeah. at, at um, Deep, Creek. Deep Creek. I'm a Friday morning prayer. Maurice is there. He's 80. Wow. And he always starts off like at a three. But he gets to a ten, and you you know in your heart you're going, I, I want you to get to a ten. I'm so accustomed to that anointing, that that fervency. The bro, if you don't get there, I feel cheated. See, he has shaped me. <laughs> he shaped me. Your, your prayer life has shaped me, and it's all culture. You know, Kevin Kevin doesn't talk. He doesn't say prayers. Kevin prays prayers. I want to just interject here uh, in terms of the way I've been shaped also when I first came here, again, coming from an African-American church, you know, it's, it's like Dan said, it's 3 to 10 real fast. That's part of, of culture, expressive, forceful. But I can remember coming here, and this is really what touched me deeply, is when there was the holy hush, and there was such a weight in the room. 
No one was screaming. No one was declaring. No one was ramped up. But after all that, then it shifted. You know, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. That was a powerful moment for me. And kind of experienced that for the first time when I came to New Life. And I began to cherish that. And I began to cherish the moments when when, when Dan would come to the end of his sermon. And, and, and sometimes the most powerful time was seemingly things were dialed back. And he would begin to, you know, pull the net a bit or just finish his sermon. His tone was so, it was just anointed. It, was, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, boisterous or trying to work anymore. Just in a very common, calming voice, sharing the word of God. And your heart was moved. <laughs> there was something that was taking place. That was all new. And so I learned to appreciate. I love it, you know, yeah. when you can go there and, <laughs> and everybody's up. But boy, the power also of when you're not up there at a 10, but yet there's a richness of the word of God in the stories. I think, you know, that. Church, you know, one of the things in the multi-ethnic church, the multicultural churches, uh, where you hopefully can really respect another expression of prayer or worship and not judge it. That's good. You know, the, 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 the cheerleader That's right. type will judge the, the cognitive quiet. conversational <laughs> prayer. And then the white suburban will judge the emotional prayer as being like that's emotionalism. Yes. And so instead of agreeing in prayer, you're judging the prayer of another. And I say shame on us for it. Yeah. Just enter in. Yeah. If the content's good, and the guy that's praying isn't sleeping with his secretary, <laughs> that's right. just enter in. Yeah, you're repeating yourself. Okay, well, we, we can go there. But I think we've been able to demonstrate that's what's unique is, and you probably know this, where you can have the various streams of prayer in one place and leave and say, wow. There was a sense of God's presence yeah. in the place. Well, I think it's 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 so important. Like so many churches I've been in, prayer is for the service. So a five-minute prayer, a two-minute prayer right yeah. before the main corporate worship service. But I think what you guys have helped build is a space for this to happen. That's not Sunday morning, although it feeds into Sunday morning and re reflects Sunday morning. But it's a space set aside for the church to come together. And there's worship, there's declaration. And that's, again, it, it's, it's happening in other parts of the world, but that is unique in many streams where people don't have 6.30 a.m. prayer anymore. Or <laughs> like, and also where every, maybe they do, but it's very liturgical or just the music or the pastor does a short devotion. But really where here anyone can kind of grab the mic, again, with, with some oversight, with some, some mm -hmm. tips. It's, yeah, it's so beautiful, and yeah, I know that if if there's if there's a strategy someone's looking for, it might be to just gather together and start to pray with one another, like from different cultures, different races, different generations, different political views. One of the questions I on these, I, I sometimes open up questions to my students or to to other friends, people I'm connected with. This is a super simple question for both of you, but we've used this term a bunch. Define multicultural worship or multi-ethnic worship. What Pastor Kevin, what does that what does that term mean to you? And then Pastor Dan too. Um well, just generally, you know, in terms of worship, I, I believe it's a heart, and I put the heart in a heart expression. I believe of honor uh, and reverence uh, for God. 
um, when you put the multi-ethnic in it, I think it's it's individuals coming together, different ethnic groups coming together and uh, honoring God through music, uh, proclamation of the word. Um, but again, there's that diversity there. And it's doing more than tolerating someone else's expression of worship. It's actually, I think, uh, I think we've created a space by the grace of God where in time, if you stay with us long enough, you're going to grow to appreciate <laughs> the different expressions. And my sense is that pleases God so much to the point where he comes, <laughs> you know, he inhabits the praises of his people. And uh, there's nothing more uh, delightful to me or encouraging to me is when when we, are, when we enter into a time of worship and you look at the congregation and the hands are up, you know, tears are going forth, people are flooding, flooding the, uh, the altar. I mean, you know, whether it's white, it's black, Hispanic, Asian, people are not looking to see, you know, what color someone is. It's everything is pointed to God. We're here to reverence our King and our God. Whether we are singing, if it's music, if we're singing a black gospel number, or we singing contemporary Christian music, you know, hey, I learned to, I fell in love with what they call, you know, white worship, whatever yeah. that is. I, I fell in love with integrity in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> that was so different than yeah. what I was, oh, I would put the integrity music on and I would go, it, it just settled my spirit and my heart and I just developed the appreciation and, and that grew. That's way before I came to... Yeah. The Lord was preparing me for that. But when I think of multicultural, multi-ethnic worship, I think of people coming from every tribe, nation, you know, and their, their heart is focused on bringing reverence and honor yeah. to the king. I, I fell in love with integrity too, but really Alvin Slaughter and Ron Canole because they, yeah, their they, bands were like <laughs> some of the greatest jazz musicians of they all started. time. They were sensitive to the Lord, That's but right. like That's right. their bands different. were some of the... Yeah, some of the tightest bands. Yeah, Pastor Dan, how how do you define when you're thinking about corporate worship, multicultural and multi-ethnic worship? Yeah, I would in two. I would look at it in two ways. Generally, one is multicultural worship. It's it's really ninety percent about style. Okay. You know, we learned in seminary that worship has structure, content, and style. And what you'll find about the black. Pentecostal or the black evangelical is theologically they are aligned almost 100% with the white evangelical. Hmm. Trinitarian, pro-life, uh, inspired word of God. I mean, doctrinally there is not a... So the content, the, from a theological perspective, the content is very similar. And it gets down to style. You're, you're a world-class musician. You know, it gets down to you clap on the beat, you clap off the beat. It gets down to call and response, or you, everybody's on the melody, and that's all style. And um, I think it's important if you're going to be a multicultural church to shape the church to respect style. If you don't address it, you know, people will check out if the style is not their, their preference. But if you'll teach that there are different styles, and you make it fun, and you make it relevant, and you call it out, I, I think... I think that is a, uh, the different styles can come together. And it, it doesn't have to be an artificial merger, like, hey, we're going to sing one black song, then we're going to sing one yeah. white song. You can kind of start there. But there's, in my view, there's a lot of convergence in worship music now. 
It's, true. it's like the, the distinct camps are kind of like melting together a little bit. I think you can you can navigate this that, that can appeal to a wide range of, of cultures. You see Maverick City as an uh, example. Yeah, and Maverick absolutely. City being an example. Yeah. They're filling stadiums. Yeah. Like, and they're, it sounds like they're being themselves. Like they're just That's being right. who they are, which is... Contempt, what is it? It's, yeah, it's, you got this is it goth? Can they Can they win a Dove Award or can they win a Stellar Award? Like, both. <laughs> like, it's True. beautiful. I yeah. think there's this prophetic thing in worship now that's mm-hmm. prevalent, you know, and the call and response, you know, that African American church is influenced. Mm-hmm. Like, you go to, you know, your worship, they're very solemn, stays on the melody. Mm-hmm. That's all black church. Mm-hmm. That's not CCM. Mm-hmm. I got the records. <laughs> the lead vocal stays on the melody. Yeah. And so we, these stylistic things have kind of emerged. The one difference that I think uh, we're still navigating is that traditional black gospel music, the narrative of the music is personal story. Mm-hmm. I overcome, Testimony, I come out. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the exodus motif. I'm coming out of bondage into the promised land. And it's, there's a lot of telling the story where white worship music has historically been more theologically heavy so it's more the cosmic story it's more like you get the trinity in there and you get cross in there black worship is 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 a soulful telling of a spiritual journey in many cases and it connects and now this merger it's connecting it's like you know jeremy you're in you're in the you're in the bullseye of, of the criticism of contemporary worship by everybody. But contemporary, this, what God's doing, it, it's moving people's hearts. Something's happening, it's moving people's hearts of every color. Because we all share pain, right. we all share aspirations of freedom, and these songwriters, they're tapping into it. And so these critics, I'm going, I've been to your churches. Yeah. You may have the theological, you may have it all (laughs) down to the structure perfect. It's not moving my heart. Jeremy on his saxophone after 15 minutes with a good worship leader, I'm healed. (laughs) Something is healing me. It's good. And it's not an emotional release. I hate that, Kevin. No, I hate that. It's just emotion. No, you've never been in it. That's right. I'm sorry. You don't speak from what you know. Broken people love yeah. the music of today. Sure. I, I, you know. I went. I went to. I took actually a well-known scholarly friend to Hillsong London with me, who had yeah shared those concerns, particularly around the concerns that people in these churches don't sing, <laughs> like it's it's only a performance. Which I mean, they just beautiful production. Some of the best in the world. Like I mean, they're in London, so they have. Yeah members who are in the the West End theater like they're doing their lighting and it was amazing but as as I took that scholar there who had yeah blogged about well these churches don't sing anymore it's just a performance as we looked around 5000 people singing their guts out to the creed like the Nicene Creed <laughs> and then singing parts of Philippians 2 like not only singing but also singing like historic biblical passages of scripture And then, as you're saying, it wasn't just intellectually singing, but it was fully embodied, like heart, Mm -hmm. mind, soul, hands. 
And I think that's something that may be missing in some of those churches who are critiquing. Well, he loved it, yeah, and, and thought so thought about like thought about. And, and I, I, I I can I can agree with it. I have been to some of the churches in his region, and I think one of the biggest problems with particularly the Pentecostal and Charismatic Church is that they're no longer Pentecostal and Charismatic, and so Assemblies of God churches that I know of and grew up in, they'll they'll still have to sign that they speak in tongues and they, they pa- you know, have yeah. passionate worship, but really it has gone to that production-driven, stage-driven, that people show up, but they, they don't know to sing, they don't know why they sing, they don't know why they raise their hands. And so there is a need for even some of that teaching, again, as part of the church and modeling. So I, on one hand, I understand why he's saying that, because I've been to some of those churches too, where you've got people on the platform mm-hmm. going crazy and everyone else staring around. But again, I think that's why what what you guys have done around corporate prayer helps fuel that heart, helps fuel the the community, creating that space. One one other thing that's that's kind of been on on my mind, um, you know, you talked about style and multicultural worship. For me, it, it, it is also the structures of the teams and every culture has, yeah, I mean, we can talk in general, Every individual has different leadership styles and structures, but particularly I've I've been a part of worship in African-American churches since I'd skip my church and go play sax at a North Indianapolis black church, like since I was a teenager and, and love that. And my very first rehearsal that I ever went to at New Life, let me share what, what how, I don't think I've shared this with either of you. So they, they decided that night to do an introduction of, the leadership team of the worship. This is when our band and choir were meeting together, rehearsing. We were in the high school just down the road. We used another church for, for rehearsing. And so band and choir rehearsed together. I think it was every Thursday. And so I made the cut. They said I could join the team. And so I was there and we, we prayed a little bit. We worshiped a little bit. And then this night they wanted to introduce everyone who was leading. And the, the, the main worship coordinator, Jamal, friend of all of ours, amazing guy, great great guy was overseeing everything and as as he started to introduce okay here I'm the musical director here's the choir director here's the assistant choir director here's the secretary to the assistant here's the small group leader here's the events coordinator the events leader for me as I sat there I saw that the structure of that team reflected some of what I saw in in black churches and african-american churches that that I had seen where everybody has a title you know, church mother, elder, like assistant to the deacon. And I thought it was such a beautiful thing. The funny thing was, though, there was probably 65 people there. And they brought them all on stage to honor them, to encourage them, to give them those titles. By the end, there were 64 people on stage and only one guy, me, my, my first rehearsal, sitting still in the, in the church pews. And, and for me, it, it showed that, yes, that style was part of it, but there was an openness within the flow of the church to also utilize some structures that, you know, if, if I would have only been in my white suburban church all my life, I may have not seen that actually everybody has a role to play. And I think that's something so, yeah, so beautiful that even in, in your, your congregation, like there is space sometimes to utilize other, it's not just the pastor or not just the worship leader, but also these other, these other people who are lay leaders that still 
still have titles. Like, how do you see, like, those types of beyond the style, like things around time and space, even different theologies of, of worship? How have you seen that expressed here at, at New Life, where, you know, you bring in a, some Lutheranness, you bring in the charismatic, you bring in some, some experiences from black church, like, yes, singing different music styles is one thing, but there's, there is a lot more going on beneath that surface. What, what does that look like for you guys beyond just what I've, I observed at that, that first rehearsal of difference in, in leadership styles? What, what else kind of happens within a multi-ethnic or multicultural church that sometimes we might not see because it's not just, just the songs? You mentioned uh, something is, is not simple, but something that we worked out or was low-grade, uh, not stress, uh, tension was time, the time element. You know, I came from a tr tradition where, um, well, uh, Baptocostal. Come on. You know, so Kojic plus, you know, Baptist, um, you combine that uh, for, as an African American, it, it was important that I encounter something during the worship service uh, uh, when I went to church. You know, it was a big deal. You know, we have a suit and tie, uh, you have the choir. And I was, you know, a musician also. You know, you, you spend two or three hours in a rehearsal and you're ready to go there. It was more than a performance. I mean, it, it, you know, you were ready for church on Sunday. And church was not a one hour or 90 minute, you know. Church was two hours, maybe three hours, and then you came back that evening for some more church. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. more singing yes. and more yeah, playing yeah. and more <laughs> yeah. preaching. And I mean, that was, that was church, that was life. And so having to adapt to, you know, that being cut back to where church was an hour, hour and a half. And I had to, again, adjust to, I said, well, I'm just getting warmed up here. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I would imagine for, for many African-Americans that, that was a challenge or is a challenge initially, not for all, uh, but that was my personal experience. Uh, but then I learned that, okay, um, what you received in two or three hours, uh, you can also receive that in an hour and a half. Or in some cases, you, you leave room for it to breathe because when we were at Indian River, we didn't have some of the same limitations we have now. We we're multi-site. So there were times when there was the afterglow. Yes. <laughs> and after the service, there were, you know, th that uh, stadium, yeah. not stadium, the auditorium, auditorium yeah. in the front, you had... I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 people that stayed. Kind of tearing at the tearing, altar. Yeah, I like yeah. the term, Come tearing, on. yes. That happened several Sundays. So that accommodated those, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, for those who needed more, because then you had those where 90 minutes was too long, yeah. one hour was too long. My wife being one. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, after hour. So, you know. I don't want to ruin my whole Sunday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's right. So, yeah, you, you're excited about. It's a well, day come of on, rest. Man. It's a day Let's of go rest. rest. Exactly. So, no. you know, I had, you, you learn. Yeah. Again, that's part of the, the journey in a multi-ethnic setting that one is not better than the other. Although, initially, you think this is more spiritual. You, you really do. You have, you know, there's room. There's grace to grow in that. You know, oh, this is better because we're in church for two and a half or three hours. 
than if you're in church for uh, one hour, one and a half. No, God can move and, and do the... So you, you don't judge. Again, it's the whole thing of judging one to be better than the other versus, okay, God, we can... We, we can move if it's, you can move if it's an hour, hour and a half. It's where your heart is and how your heart is positioned. Do you have preferences or do you have a preference? Yeah. But again, we, we're not to let our preference dominate or then supersede what's best, you know, for the entire family. I, I can remember even in, in some of those settings you're describing, they're very memorable. They're formative to me and a number of friends that grew up, you know, they were college age during some of that, that time. Like white they were from you know suburban white churches in hampton roads and and yeah found the lord at new life and i know even to today some of their most meaningful times would be when you'd come and lead a shout i mean you'd lead yes lord you'd leave when I, when i think of, and i know still that happens today and in some of the different services and weekend conferences and things that that, that we do here but that helped form them even though they'd never been a part of They'd had only experienced integrity worship, the reading of God's word, preaching of God's word, altar call, and leaving. They were drawn into that celebration, that spontaneity, the really the inbreaking of the kingdom, and that as they embraced that as part of their own spiritual life and kind of worship identity. So I think it's yeah, those tensions are again yeah. are really there, but it's also beautiful when people like you help break that or bring something fresh to to others oh. and it blessed oh, me it. <laughs> too as I, where it was accepted yeah i was allowed to it actually it came very natural it wasn't like i was planning or i was trying to force something which i think could have backfired if i said i'm gonna force this i'm gonna be black today and i'm gonna <laughs> i was allowed to be you know, as 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 you know, uh, being one to launch the church with Dan, I was allowed to be myself. I felt free. I don't even think Dan even said you can be free. I felt I could be free. Quite frankly, I couldn't be anyone else but myself, and I felt that that's what God wanted me to be. I loved Him. I worshipped a certain way, um, and that's what I was. I was just being authentic. And of course, when we're doing that, God has a way of taking that and you know, in all ways, yeah. know, using it to shape us. And I know that. Yeah, that's. A very unique thing to some of my african-american friends that are in multicultural churches feel they aren't free and they don't have a voice and they feel they're in white man's space and those like how what what would you encourage those that are in maybe in those spaces that don't have that freedom you are but they're in a a space where they're the in the minority that's not 50 50 like it may be here how, how would you encourage, yeah, African-American pastors, leaders, or even, yeah, those of other cultures that are, that are in spaces that maybe isn't, isn't what they, they feel at home in and even sometimes feel part of their identities silenced? Well, I, I think that's where relationship is important. And if there's a, a good foundation laid in terms of their connections with the other leaderships or, or their white brothers and sisters, um, they need to have a conversation, honest conversation. This is where I am. Um, is there room? I don't like to use the term permission because it gets kind of, it's not real. Then if, okay, yes, you have permission to do that. <laughs> um, I felt that, you know, it was, it was just be yourself. Now, this is the thing. If they praise a certain way, raise the hand, or if they shout out and, and they're silenced or censored, then there's a problem. Yeah. 
And I don't think the reaction should be to leave if that happens. There needs to be a conversation about what what are the core values and the goals of the church as it relates to being a multi-ethnic church. Because you're not going to be authentically a multi-ethnic, multicultural church if you know that which you don't feel comfortable with, um, you're going to silence. Okay. Uh, I know one thing that we did here. Dan would do it from the pulpit. We, we he talked about clapping, for example. He made a joke of that, but it was real. He was teaching. You know, I, you know, African Americans traditionally clap off the beat. <laughs> Whites clap, you know, yeah. on the beat. This is the day. Yeah. <laughs> and he would get in the pulpit, and, and, and of course, you know, Dan's humor that 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 helped a lot, and everybody would laugh. But they got the message, you know. You talk, oh, there was some teaching was, there, too. There's like, teaching. Yeah, that, without making it heavy. Yeah, you yeah. Know, well, blacks do the, No, yeah. this is... And <laughs> essentially, it's funny. Our church, we, we basically clap off the beat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For the most part. So that all happened embraced with, with teaching. But also, so it just kind of defaulted yeah. in that area. So I think with some teaching... And the same thing with shouting, which in the African-American church, we call... Uh, no, we, we call it's dancing, yeah. but we call shouting. shouting yeah. So we would kind of make, you know, he would do the humor, and I would do what I do, you know, when I'm when I'm dancing or yeah. shouting, and he would do he would do the hop, and okay, everybody would just laugh. But again, it was instructing. It was okay. <laughs> it's know? okay to be different. Express it's okay. Yeah, you're free to do yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, the instructional the instruction piece mm -hmm. from the leader. I think from the senior leader or from the pastoral team, that is vitally important. Well, just just two more things for you before we before we have to go. I could sit here. I would love to sit here for hours and <laughs> talk about more. There's so much more, but just yeah, I I had a question actually from one of your 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 pastors, a new life pastor, asked this: How are multi-ethnic churches navigating sociological, theological, and emotional needs of singing psalms? of lament. I actually even one of I'm here at a global workers conference too. One of the global workers was just talking to me about kind of songs of lament, songs of, of pain. How how are multi whether our you know our church here new life or other multi church uh, thinking about thinking of covid, you know, unjust killing of African Americans. There's so many we could list hundreds of personal issues that we have. How are churches dealing with that pain through through music? Good question. We at New Life have done a couple of teachings on the prayer of woman, song mm -hmm. of woman, and had uh, like in the context of a special meeting in a group in a worship service on a weekend, the song of lament strictly defined as the absence. And again, that's partly cultural. African-American worship is contrary to lament. African-American worship is about victory coming out. You're going to be delivered. You're coming into the promised land. It, and it's, it's hardwired to lament, which is a little bit more of a, how would you describe it? Even in Lutheran churches, born and raised in Lutheran churches, they don't sing lament. And so it's it's a it's something that I think has been absent from independent, non-aligned churches like ours. It's been absent from charismatic. Uh, I like songs that lead to victory. I would be a novice in songs of lament. I have not enjoyed songs of lament personally. Uh, 
there's an awful lot of theological talk about lament. I've never seen lament in a corporate worship service that really sits well with me. I don't feel there's resolution at the end of lament that, hey, Jesus is still winning. Um, so that I think that I give our church a D minus. <laughs> How are we navigating it? And you know, this is an illustration of like the song of lament. Song of lament would would come out of theological institutions. High level people would talk about lament. It's not something like the worship leaders of our church get together and say, "Hey, let's talk about saying, hey, let's do a song of lament." No, we don't. We don't really process it that way. But I do think there's elements of lament. And I don't know if you would agree with this. That show up in songs. Um, uh, in in some of the newer songs that are that are you know that are that they're writing today, I feel part of it. I'm expressing disappointment. I'm, I'm expressing fear. Although the whole song would not be a lament. Yeah. And I don't know if that that's by design or if that's just how, how the Lord's saying it. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the It makes for a good song. Like I I feel like every K like every K Love song is like, oh I was in despair, I was slightly down, but gee like so I mean I think in Would some of the popular songs No, but I think it 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 makes a good story. Like makes, thing yeah. things were bad and now they're now they're yeah. now they're now they're good. And lament would be things are bad, and I see no hope. Yeah, things are turning I, around, I but think you're still God. Biblical lament would be like Brueggemann would be orientation. The Psalms orient us, but they also disorient us, and then we're reoriented. And so that Brueggemann, like that disorientation, allows us to be connected with tragedy, death, pain. And I would say in the biblical Psalms, other than just a few individuals there always is but but i will hope in the lord but i will trust exactly. in the lord and then in the whole in the whole corpus of the psalms if they're used kind of liturgically over yeah. a year like there's yeah you're oriented i i will come into the courts of the lord you're disoriented i want to i want to kill these people i'm mad at them <laughs> yeah. and then you're reoriented but right. those who wait upon the lord right. yeah I, I would say you're maybe the closest to that would, would be your your uh, African spirituals, maybe yeah. spirituals. Nobody knows yeah, yeah, the, the trouble, trouble I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Nobody All that, or you know, more contemporary, which is uh, I'm saying when we were growing up, they used to sing it. I'm I'm climbing up the rough side of yeah. the mountain. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, good. yeah. You had you had several of those songs yeah. uh, that my I would say my grandparents, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, in their churches they would sing those those songs. Had very few words. Yeah. But boy, you know, it was talking about the struggle. It was talking about oppression. But you know, I will trust in the Lord. Like I will trust in the Lord till I die. Yeah. That kind of song. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole song. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord uh, till I die. You know, that that's the song. <laughs> and they would rock that thing. <laughs> you know, the church would it would be 40, 50 people, and man, they would sing it for about twenty minutes. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> So you had a lot of those uh, songs sprinkled in up to maybe not as much now, but yeah, there's been a shift now to, to like you said, more victory, overcoming. But for sure, that's part of the African American uh, worship experience. Yeah, the spirituals particularly yeah hold that tension of 
there is absolute pain and suffering. Yes. But, but a lot of it was yeah. in the sweet by and by, yeah. though. Yeah. It wasn't, there was that the, in that era, didn't foresee, you know, freedom. Yeah. But it, a lot of songs about, you know, looked over the king. Yep. Yeah, where, yeah, where, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it was, it, it was after death yeah. in being in the presence of yeah. God or in the kingdom that, that you know, we're looking yeah. for that day. Uh, yeah, I think there is just a call then for the church to, to, be, have a space to bring that pain and suffering, yeah. but but also have hope. Escat a lot, not just present psychological. We need that too. Present psychological yeah. hope, but like hope in the age to come that's breaking in, yeah. breaking in now in some ways. Right. So beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for struggling with us through through that conversation. Going up the rough side of the mountain. That, yeah. that was from one. Yeah, of, I'm climbing up the rough side of the mountain. Climbing up the rough side of the mountain. <laughs> And, and they would be strumming on the guitar. Oh, that was a big a, a yeah. song that, that really would get people on their feet. I'm climbing up the rough side of the mountain. Well, I think people want, yeah, authentic worship. And so it can feel like Disney, Walt Disney World. Like the, everything's perfect right, and magical. Right. And I think particularly New Life, maybe that space isn't right now on Sunday mornings. Maybe that is in small groups. Maybe that's in some of the prayer meetings where you can bring someone who's struggling with cancer, someone who's oh, yeah. wanting to pray over, you know, racial issues in the States. Like some of that lament can be done in intercession and in prayer um, and not, not corporately or musically, but something, yeah, to, for us to, to continue to consider. Last, last question for both of you um, from one of my, my undergrad students. If you could go back to 1999 before you planted new life. So if you have a DeLorean, back to the future, you, if we had it sitting out there, outside, you could jump in there and you'd go back, what would you tell yourself? Jump in the DeLorean, go back to right before, the day before you planted the church, what would you tell Pastor Kevin? What would you tell Pastor Kevin? Pastor Dan, what would you tell Pastor Dan? <laughs> good question. We got good students. <laughs> Buckle up now. <laughs> hey, that's a good one. Buck Buckle up. I think maybe I would say your idealism will be shattered eventually and you're going to be hurt. I mean, if I'm talking to myself, yes. I'm going to speak to myself. You're going to say, Dan, Pastor Dan. Dan. Do you call yourself Pastor Dan? Pastor, Pastor Dan. Dan. Bishop Dan. Bishop Dan. Archbishop. Is that um, there is a price to pay that is not apparent in the first five years. Mm -hmm. uh, these last three years have been brutal. And I think to say to myself, it's worth it. It's going to be what God's going to bless is going to be beyond your wildest dreams, Dan. Trust me, it's not entered your mind what I'm going to do in this church here and in the nations. So there's great joy coming, but there's also going to be great heartache, and uh, and that heartache is something that is unavoidable. Um, you know, I remember um, Kevin saying to me. Dan, uh, I've got race fatigue. That's a new t 
Every Caucasian that joins the church starts at square one. Mm -hmm. And you got all the misconceptions, preconceptions. And then every black person starts with the same square one. And so you get this group, and then it's just always teaching and modeling and having. And after a while, you go, could we just move on? And the thing is, if you're called to pastor a church, there's no moving on. We have babies that need to start from square one in this. And uh, I would say there's some rough time coming. But has it been worth it, Dad? It has really been worth it. And a great joy for me is to see a whole next generation of pastors that really get this thing. Joel gets it, Jeremy gets it, Tina gets it, David gets it. That's true. Right, Kevin? Steve, they, they get it, and I know that the future is secure with another with the rising leadership mm-hmm. we have in the church. That's true. I'll give you a quick story. I was asked Joseph Umidi, I said, Pastor Kevin, are you thinking about starting a church? Multi-ethnic church. What do you think? And he said, well, have you paid the price for the vision yet? No, it's been kind of like all fun so far, you know. I've been talking to black pastors and dreaming and white pastors and the music's kind of fun. And, and he said, he said, well, there's going to come a time that you're going to have to count the cost. That's true. And um, to be fair, however, Jeremy, the cost has not been insurmountable. That's true. The rewards have offset the cost. It's kind of like marriage. When you have your first big dust-up, you're going to wonder, was it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Well, I was idealistic the first year. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Anything you would tell yourself, Pastor Kevin, if, if you could jump in that time machine, an encouragement to yourself, uh, a word of wisdom? Uh, basically, I would echo a lot of what, what, what Dan said. Um, be sure of your assignment because it's going to be tested. Um, is uh, because what we did was somewhat uh, you're saying idealistic, or some would say faddish. You know, everybody multi-ethnic. Oh yeah, yeah that that's the end thing. Yeah. You know, so it's easy to embrace that. Yeah, we're gonna do a multi-ethnic church. Yeah, that's that's you know that's chic. Uh, but like he said, there's there's a price for it, and count count the cost as best you can. Um, because again, uh, if if you're not called to this, um, and if that this is not your assignment, you'll know real fast. Such a, we already talked about that. The sense of it is an assignment. It's an assignment. Which gives you a bandwidth to endure some stuff. It's true. It's I had to come back to that question many times. You know, hey, this is this is my life calling. It's a calling. It's an assignment. This is not something that. I can get angry, get upset, or because, you know, something happens that uh, I don't, it doesn't make me feel good that I can throw in the towel and, and walk away uh, without consequences, <laughs> without significant consequences, natural and spiritual. So I, I think make sure that this is your particular assignment, which it has been, and therefore, if it is indeed, there's going to be a grace. And I would say we've come this far by faith and grace, <laughs> leaning on the Lord as the song goes. And as, as Dan would say, and I think part of the success of the church 
you know, we talk about worship, we talk about prayer, um, we talk about leadership, but it's a place of grace, and, and Dan has modeled that. It, it's people can, you know, can come in at any level and 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 grow. So you can say something that's silly or foolish or offensive. It's okay. We can grow and learn, and we can laugh. So that grace piece has been so vitally important as well, and it trickles down through every fiber of the church and, and, and groups. It's beautiful. If we can know our yeah, know, know our assignments, yes. persevere yes. when it's hard. And be faithful yeah. to it yeah. because you can know it, and the enemy comes to steal, rob, and yeah. to get you off track. And and he has lots of opportunity in a multi-ethnic church to do that <laughs> because there's a lot of room for offense. <laughs> you feel like you're slighted or someone said something that, oh, they're... Oh, any number of things that can happen. And you're either gonna, going to give grace yeah. or you're going to take offense. Yeah. And if you're going to take offense, after a while, you're, you're going to walk away. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think that's a beautiful place to end. Like, walk out your assignment, but also receive and give the grace of God. That's right. Thanks, Pastor Kevin. Thanks, Pastor Dan. Yeah, what a delight. Thanks so much for listening to the Worship Theology Podcast. This is a space where we're attempting to bridge belief and praxis, theology and worship. Check out some of our other episodes. We'll see you next time.